There's an old saying that goes, it's always darkest before the dawn. Have you heard that before? Turns out, scientifically, it's not true, <laughs> like so many sayings. Uh, it turns out it's actually darkest at the exact middle of the night, and then it starts getting a little bit lighter. But I'm not really sure that's what that phrase is about. I don't know that it's really about the measurable amount of light. I was a youth pastor for, I think, about nine or ten years. And, and I have maybe something I, I should confess. I, I hate overnight events. I hate them with a burning passion. Uh, I, I have this issue, I guess, where I can't sleep the first night in a new location. I just can't. I, I won't get any sleep. doesn't matter. Even when we moved into our new house, I was up all night. Every noise is like, what's that? What's that? So you couple that with being, let's say, on a camping trip with maybe 20 or 30 junior and senior hires, and you can imagine I got no sleep at all. I remember uh, on one particular time, uh, we had finally gotten the youth in their tents, and everybody was kind of down for the night. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, a couple cars roll up to the campsite right next to us. And when I say right next to us, they were literally maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 feet from the girl's den, the tent that my wife was in. And they make a huge bonfire, bust out these guitars, and start singing these drunken songs at 2 o'clock in the morning at the top of their voice. And I'm in my tent peeking out going, are they coming over? Are they doing anything? Are the youth out running around? No sleep whatsoever. I think I know a little bit something about what this phrase means, that it's it's always darkest before the dawn, because there was that time, as time ticked on so slowly, And you get to that late morning hour and you're waiting for the sun to come up and you're saying, please, God, where is the sun? I want to get out. I want to get a fire going. I want to get people up and get going. Can this night just end? And it's in those times that the mind starts racing. It's in those times that, especially if there's a little chill in the air, you feel the coldest because all the, the warmth of your body heat has been going out all night long and you're just dying for the sun to come out. Maybe you're here today and you're going through a time like that in your own life. Kind of a dark time and you're wondering, when, when is that light going to break through? When is this coldness and this darkness, when is it going to break? When is the morning going to come? As we look around at our world, we can wonder that as well with war and disease and bombings, racial strife, crime, persecution. When is the light going to come? Today is Easter morning. It's the morning that we celebrate Christ's resurrection. That's why I've called the sermon, Morning Has Come. And yet it's hard sometimes to look at our own lives and to look at the world and say, where where is it? Where is the impact? Open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Uh, If you really don't have a Bible, if you're visiting today and you don't have a Bible at home, please take ours. We can get more. I would love to make that our Easter gift to you. My only condition is that you read it. Start maybe in the book of John and and just read about the cross and the resurrection toward the end of the book of John. But I'd love to give you that gift for Easter today. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're in this series called uh, A New Belonging. And it's a look at Ephesians. And we're, we're still kind of in the series, but we're going to focus on Easter this morning. 
But if you come back another Sunday, we're looking at this idea that through Christ, we belong to God. In a world that's so fragmented and fractured and relationships are broken, Christ heals us first and foremost between us and God, and then between us and each other through Jesus Christ. But we're going to look at just these first 10 verses of chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to look at from this idea, or look at it from this idea of mourning breaking through. And if we're going to understand how much we need to long for and recognize the glory of the morning of Easter, we have to back up a little bit in first recognizing the darkness that is there. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature, deserving of wrath. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? And again, we'll get to the hope. But hope shines brightest when you realize how desperate the situation is. And so Paul starts with this concept of what is sin, and he uses two two words. He says transgression and also sin. A transgression is, is crossing a boundary that was not to be crossed. Breaking a rule that was not to be broken. It is the willful going over and saying, I know I was told not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm sure there's nobody like that here that's ever done anything quite like that. But it's a breaking of a law. That other word, sin, is the missing of a mark. It's falling short. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have kind of this these two aspects of sin, both breaking things that we know are wrong to do or transgressing a line that we know is wrong, but also falling short of God's holy, perfect standard. And we hear the words of Romans 3.23 that are echoed, echoed here as well. All of us. We are all sinners. And this passage tells us three important things about us because of sin. It starts in verse 1. As for you, you were dead. Sin brings death. God is the creator and sustainer of life. He made us to be alive with Him forever and ever. He says, my way is life. I I have this blessing to bestow on you. Eternal life to be with me forever and ever and ever. And we say, thank you, but no thanks. And if God and His way is life and we turn away from that, what's the other option? There's only one other option. It doesn't matter how far away you turn. The other option from life is death. So we can say, well, God is mean and nasty, and how can he do this? Or we can say, we chose the other option. If I took one of these flowers and I cut it, and I gave it to you, you might say, thank you, this is beautiful, this is lovely, it smells so sweet, and it's nice and green, and it's beautiful, but what's going to happen tomorrow, or the next day, or the next day after that? Well, the flower is dying. From the moment I cut it, it is cut off from its life source and it is dying. It might look beautiful. It might smell beautiful. It might look full of life. And we might look around us or even look in the mirror and say, I'm pretty good. I'm doing great. Or our world's really not that bad. 
But we've been cut off from that source of life. We are dying. So we are dead in our sins, but there's more. Verses 2 through 3 say, talk about this way that we used to live. And this way that we used to live, it, it might seem to our modern mindset that this is saying, well, when you wake up in the morning, you get to choose how you're going to live. And you have all these options available to you, but that's not really the way this is being used. This is somebody who has chosen a path and is now stuck in that path because the path has become a rut that they cannot get out of. It has become a ditch so deep they cannot scale the cliffs to get out of it. Walking in the ways of the world, stuck in the world's ways of living, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires, these things that we think make us free, I'll do what I want, and then we become enslaved to those very things that we thought we wanted, the very things we thought would bring freedom. And that's the irony of sin. Promises freedom. Brings slavery. So we're dead in our sin. We're enslaved in our sin. But wait. There's more. Verse 3 at the end, it says, Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We read that, and it's so offensive to us. How can a loving God be angry at us? How can a loving God show wrath? There was a story in the news this week in Rochester of a woman who shortly after birth somehow, some way, killed her newborn child. There was another story, nationwide, worldwide story. Brussels, Belgium. At least two bombs, possibly three, went off. One in an airport, one in a metro station. About 28 people so far have died from those blasts. Over 340 were injured, some very seriously so. What did you feel as I told you about those stories? Or maybe you remember when you first saw them in the news. Or maybe you can think to some news story that you saw. What did you feel? Did you just read those and say, well, hey, whatever makes them happy. I mean, if that's what makes them happy, then God bless them. That's what they should do. I hope not. I read those stories and I feel angry. I say there's an injustice there. There's something wrong. Somebody should make that right. That should not be allowed to happen. When we do that, we are declaring we have a standard of right and wrong. And we're putting that standard on somebody and condemning them and saying it's wrong. And because it's wrong, because there's this gross injustice, we feel, dare I say it, wrath. A righteous anger. Throughout Scripture, God's wrath is always His response to injustice. Things that are wrong. God's not like you and me. He doesn't just fly off the handle and get angry. He doesn't have to come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my temper. God never loses his temper. The wrath of God is a righteous wrath. It is his response to sin. To be under God's wrath is to be condemned by the perfect judge. When I read those stories and I see people being killed, people being slaughtered, just gross injustices throughout our world... I have to remind myself, that's just what I'm aware of. What if I could see every newspaper, every news article from around the entire world in every language that there is, and I knew all of those things, how would I feel then? Take that a step farther. What if you could see inside the head of every single person, and you knew the things they were plotting and planning and thinking about and dwelling on? 
I hope we can understand where the wrath of God comes from. It is his proper response to injustice. So here we are in the darkness of sin, dead, enslaved, condemned. And yet we can look at the world and say, but it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, sure, there are bad things that go on from time to time. Sure, maybe I do some bad things from time to time, but that doesn't mean I'm as bad as I could be. It doesn't mean the world is as bad as it could be. If this is true and the world is really this awful, wouldn't it be a whole lot worse? And the answer is yes, except for one factor, God's mercy. At any given moment, the thing that is holding us back from being as bad as we could be and holding the world back from being as awful and as dark as it possibly could be is the mercy of God restraining sin in this world. And he has a purpose in that restraint. It is because he knows morning is coming and he's going to offer a way of salvation that has come, has been offered, and he is waiting patiently so that we can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Because God's plan is to bring the morning. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. So here we are in our death and our sin under his wrath, enslaved to sin. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Here we are dead enslaved, condemned. And yet through Christ, we can be made alive. I want to give you a quick grammar lesson. I'm sure you all came hoping, man, I hope the pastor talks about Greek grammar. That would be awesome. I want to give you a little grammar lesson. Do you see the phrase in verse 5, made us alive with Christ? It takes a whole bunch of, of English words there to translate a Greek word. Made us alive with is all one word in Greek. It's a word with a prefix. So there's your grammar lesson, right? You know what a prefix is? It's something you throw on the beginning of a word to kind of change the meaning or enlarge the meaning. In this prefix, in in the English, we have the prefix uh, that is very similar. And it's sin, S-Y-N, not sin, the bad kind. But it means sin, S-Y-N, means with, right? We use this in synchronizing. I've heard that term. It's pretty popular today. See, I have this thing right here. This is my tablet. I love my tablet. This is a Kindle Fire. Uh, it's a little old, but I love my tablet because I have a really hard time studying in my office. So I have to get out of my office. I have to go to the coffee shop. So this gets thrown in my car, sometimes gets left in there overnight. It gets thrown on a coffee table, uh, a coffee shop, dirty table somewhere. It's got, I've got some frosting on it right here, I think, from the last time. And it gets thrown on the table. Sometimes things get spilled on it. It gets my fingerprints all over it. This thing gets used and abused. It goes with me wherever I go. And then when I come into my office to really lay out my outline and things like that, I I turn on my computer and I hit a button. And do you know what happens? All the work that I've done on here, all the notes that I've typed into here, magically appear on my computer. Do you know why? Because they're synchronized. My computer didn't get left in my car. My computer didn't get thrown on the coffee shop table. My computer doesn't have my fingerprints all over it. It didn't have to go through any of that. My tablet went through that. And so what becomes true of my tablet gets synchronized to my computer. Now look at what this is saying here. 
about Jesus Christ. It's taking this idea of synchronized and it says we are made alive in Christ because he died. His death that we didn't have to go through gets applied to us. It says we are raised up with Christ because he raised from the dead. That gets applied to us. It says we're seated with him in the heavenly realms because that is true of him. That gets applied to us. This is the message of Easter. We deserve death, but Christ took it for us, and it is counted on our behalf. We were enslaved to sin, yet Christ entered this world, enslaved to sin, lived a sinless life, and delivers us. We were under God's wrath, but Christ took all of that wrath on the cross. And because he went through that, it gets credited to us. It is synchronized. But Christ, of course, didn't stay dead. Turn to John chapter 20. I said on Good Friday that I wanted to read the crucifixion account. So today I would like to read the resurrection account. Because I think nothing and no one can say it better than God's Word. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And as we read this, as I read it for us, I want you to think about Christ's resurrection and that new life being synchronized to you, applied to you. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus, or and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. but She did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them that she had, that he had said these things to her. And the passage goes on, and Jesus, risen from the grave, appears to the disciples. He appears another time, and he sees Thomas, and Thomas doubts, and he says, touch my hands where the nail went. Touch my side where the spear was. He appears to crowds, big and small. 
Jesus Christ is alive. Morning has come. Can you imagine the darkness of the disciples on that morning before the sun broke, thinking all was lost? Maybe you can, because maybe that's where you're at right now. Can you imagine then their excitement when they saw Jesus Christ risen from the grave? I hope you can imagine that too. I hope you can have that hope in your life. That little prefix, with, synchronized, is so important that that which is true of Christ can be made true of us, that we can be saved from our sin and risen to new life because of Him. When light shines, nothing stays the same. And so I want to look briefly at the rest of this passage and look at what is true of us when the light of Christ saves us, raises us up. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2. But God, starting in verse 4, because of His great mercy, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us alive. There's the first thing. We are made alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and God raised us up. There's the second thing. With Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. There's the third thing. In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's the fourth thing. Is this an angry, hateful, awful God who's just looking down from heaven trying to smite people for everything they do wrong? Or is this a loving God that has answered our greatest need and applied it to our behalf? God loves you. Verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It would be silly for me to write out all of my text and all of my notes on my, my Kindle, have it synchronized for my, to my computer, and then sit down at my computer and write out the exact same things. That would be silly. It would just be meaningless and pointless. How much more silly is it for us to think that we're going to fix ourselves when Christ has fixed us, to think we're going to save ourselves when only Christ can save, to think we're going to raise ourselves up from the grave out of our enslavement, out of our condemnation when we can't do it. So the response then is not harder work, it is belief. To say, I believe what Jesus did can apply to me. And I will accept Him as dying in my place and raising from the grave. And because He did it, it is true of me as well. It's God's grace that enables us to live in the light. Look at the plans that God has for you. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The light of Easter morning can break through into our hearts, change us from the inside out, and then breaks through into the world through us as we display and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dark and lost world. Jesus Christ came into our darkness and He brought the morning. He brought the light of hope by His death, burial, and resurrection. So this light has broken through. The morning has come. The darkness has been overcome. 
But could you imagine waiting, longing for the morning, thinking, when is this light going to break through? When is this disaster going to be over? And having the light come in and shutting your eyes and saying, I don't want to see it. I don't want to feel it. I don't want to know the morning. I'm going to stick right here in the darkness because I like it. The Romans tried to keep Jesus from coming out of the tomb. They did the best thing they could. They put two trained Roman guards there. They put a seal on the tomb and they said, no one except under the authority of the Roman Empire can open this tomb. And God laughed. And he broke open that seal. And the tomb opened up under a greater authority. You can choose to ignore the morning of Easter. You can choose to ignore the resurrection. But you will only be able to do so for so long. Scripture says that one day Christ will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now is the time of mercy. Now is the opportunity to have what Christ went through credited to you, applied to you, that you can be saved. One day when He comes back, all of the injustices will be wiped away. All of the sin will be wiped away. But that will not be a moment of salvation. It will be a moment of loss. For the time of salvation will be over. So this morning I implore you, The morning has come. Open your eyes. Welcome it. Accept what Christ has done for you. And watch what Christ can do in you and through you. Be synchronized to Him. It will change your life forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's such a simple truth. It's so simple, I think we tend to overlook it. We want to be grandiose. We we want to be profound. We, We want to be deep and poetic. And yet, it's a simple truth. Your Son died on the cross, taking our sin and death, and rose from the grave, promising eternal life to all who believe. It's such a simple truth. And yet, we go to great lengths to dance around it. And great lengths to overcome these problems in our own lives and in our world. May we place our hope in you this morning. The light of the world that has broken through, the morning that has come dispelling sin and darkness forever. May today be the day of salvation for those who have yet to believe and trust in you. May they be synchronized with that death, that burial, that resurrection, that they could stand before you unashamed in the glorious morning of your kingdom. In the name of our great King, our sacrifice, our Savior, our risen Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.